Jesus um, showed up on the pages of history talking as if he was God. He claimed to forgive sins. He said that he was eternal, that he did not have a beginning and he would never have an ending. Jesus said that one day at the end of the age that he would judge the nations, that he would judge the world at the end of time. Jesus said that he and the Father were one and that when you had seen him, you had also seen the Father. Jesus showed up on the pages of history as the decided friend to sinners. Jesus decided to include those that religion had excluded, those that religion said you're not good enough, you don't behave right, you don't believe right, you're too dirty, you're too amoral, you've not done all that you need to do to be right with God, and so because of who you are and because of what you do, God has no place for you. And Jesus decided to include those that religion had excluded, and he was known as their friend, and he loved them, and he loved them back, and they loved him, and he was their friend. And then Jesus, as he was criticized by the religious establishment for those things, he didn't seem to care. He didn't seem to care about what the religious people had to say about any of the things that he was doing or any of the things that he was saying. He challenged old interpretations to scripture, interpretations that had been accepted for generations. And then he offered new interpretations, his own. And then he began to reinvent and redefine people's ideas about God and they killed him for it. So on that Friday afternoon, shortly before three o'clock, when Jesus used the last breaths in his lungs to lift up his voice to say, it is finished. His friends that were there, his family that were there, his followers that were there, they believed it was so because Jesus had just said so. They believed it was finished and they did not think that it was finished in some magnanimous or some spiritual or some significant way that Christians today think about those words, it is finished. They thought about it in the most literal sense of the word. They thought it was finished and specifically from their perspective, Jesus was finished. And like Jesus, their faith in Jesus was dead. Jesus was dead at three o'clock in the afternoon. And this was not the ending they wanted. This is not the ending they anticipated, but this was the ending that they were handed. And when Jesus said, it is finished, his followers believed every word of it. You see, Jesus' followers were Jewish initially. And Jewish people had this age old expectation of a Messiah. They believed that from the Old Testament days, that Old Testament prophets predicted a day when a savior would come and bring salvation not only to their nation, but to all the nations of the world. And his initial followers, some of his family, some of his friends, they believed that Jesus was that Messiah. But here's what you need to know, and this is what you need to never forget because this is so important. When his family and his friends and his followers left the cross that day, nobody left believing that Jesus was Savior. Nobody left believing that Jesus was Messiah and nobody left Golgotha that day believing that Jesus was a son of God. Matter of fact, hanging there, beaten, bloodied, and dead, he had never looked less like a savior. He had never looked less like a Messiah. He had never looked less like a son of God. No one left Calvary that day thinking that anything special had happened. 
Nobody left there that day thinking that anything significant had happened. No one left singing a song of victory. No one left there cherishing the old rugged cross. Not any of his followers left there that day thinking that his death was anything more than tragic. It certainly was not consequential. Jesus was dead. They knew it. The temple knew it. The empire knew it. And they left there that day afraid of everyone and believing in no one. They left there that day fearful and faithless, afraid of everybody and believing in nobody. And as they left there that day, I imagine that they were thinking thoughts that from time to time maybe you thought. Those thoughts that you would never put words to. Those words where you questioned everything. Those thoughts where you disbelieved everything where you had no faith and you knew you had no faith, but you could not bring yourself to put words to it. And I imagine as they walked away that day, they were thinking thoughts that they never thought that they would think. Perhaps they thought that Jesus had lied to them. Maybe they considered that Jesus was a class A manipulator, that he was a con artist. Maybe they blamed themselves. Maybe they had misunderstood Jesus. Maybe they saw what they wanted to see or hear what they wanted to hear. They just believed what they wanted to believe. Maybe they were the guilty ones. Maybe they had unfounded beliefs and unreasonable expectations. But whatever had happened, one thing was clear to everybody walking away from the cross that day. Jesus was not who he claimed to be, and he was not who they thought that he was. And again, some of you, you've heard this story Easter after Easter. You've heard this story multiple times if you grew up in church. But this is what you cannot forget. This is what you have to keep in mind. Nobody left the cross a Christian that day. No one left the cross believing in Jesus that day. Nobody left the cross expecting a resurrection. Nobody thought about Easter. Nobody expected anything to change. Jesus was dead and that's the way it was and that's the way it was going to be. And when they left there that day, they turned in their belief for unbelief. And they left Golgotha without faith, without hope, without a leader, and without a savior and Messiah. Jesus' body was buried by two of his secret followers because all the other followers had scattered. Nobody else was there to bury the body of Jesus. So two of his secret followers, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who was part of the political party, the religious party of the Pharisees, They went to Pilate and asked Pilate, can we bury the body of Jesus? Can we give this good man a proper burial? And Pilate allowed them to do so. So in a hurry, they took the body of Jesus down and they had to bury the body of Jesus before sundown because at sundown, the Sabbath began and they could not bury the body of Jesus once Sabbath began. So to give him a proper burial, they hurriedly put the body of Jesus in the tomb. They wrapped it as they would anybody. And then they put the stone in front of the door and they left. I imagine that Friday night, the disciples were somewhere, wherever they were, and they were mourning and they were weeping, just like some of you. You've had those long nights and you lost a mom or you lost a dad or you lost a best friend or a brother or a sister or a best friend. They were mourning and they were weeping and they were mourning and they were weeping and they were wondering how in the world did this happen? And I imagine that what little sleep they got when they woke up on Saturday, it had turned to numbness and disillusionment. But what they didn't know and certainly what they didn't expect was that tomorrow 
on Sunday morning, everything would change. John, who was one of the first followers of Jesus, one of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' miracles, his death, and subsequent resurrection, John wrote a biography about Jesus. So if you enjoy reading biographies, you should know there's a biography of Jesus. There's four of them. They're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John writes about what happened on that first Sunday morning, that first Easter, when nobody expected anything out of the normal to happen. And this is what he says. He says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' most famous female followers, Jesus had changed her life. When Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Now again, if you've grown up in church, you've heard this many, many times. If you grew up in church, but then you got away from church and you just decided church wasn't for you, religion wasn't for you, you didn't like religious people, you didn't like Christians, and here you are on Easter Sunday because somebody invited you, invited you, you just wanted to be here. You, you probably know this story. And here's the thing. We've heard this story so much, we don't even think about it. We've heard this story so many times, we, we don't even probe the story to see what's actually happening. So if you're a Christian, you need to pay attention to some new details. And if you were once upon a time a Christian, or you considered yourself a believer once upon a time, but you don't consider yourself a believer anymore, there's some things that you need to pay attention to. Because this story is better than the childhood version of Easter that was given to many of us. And many of us, we only know the childhood version of Easter that we've carried on into adulthood. Because there's lots of things in here that we need to pay attention to. There are some things... That if you're here and you're not sure whether or not you believe, there are some things about this story that you should ask. There's some things that you should pay attention to. So here's some questions that you need to think about. Why did John record that Mary Magdalene was one of the first to go to the tomb that morning? And we know that based on some other biographies of Jesus that other women were there. A woman by the name of Joanna. Why did they go to the tomb that Sunday morning? That's an important question. They went there to embalm the body of Jesus. Second question, why did they go to embalm the body of Jesus? Because they knew that Jesus was dead and they expected Jesus, a dead man, to do what all dead men do, stay dead. So they went there not expecting Easter, not expecting a resurrection. They didn't go there expecting a miracle. They went there expecting a dead body. They expected Jesus to stay dead. But when they went there, they found the stone rolled away. They found the tomb empty. So they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Their first instinct, their first instinct was, someone has stolen the body of Jesus. They didn't even know who the somebody was that would have stolen the body of Jesus. That was their first thought because they were not expecting a resurrection. Jesus' first followers were not expecting a resurrection. And so they go to the men. And the men, guess where the men are? They're locked up hiding. So here's the men locked up like cowards and spineless men while the women are out just roaming freely. <laughs> Confirming what many of us have always known. Yes. Say, what is that? No comment. <laughs> so they go, they tell the men, the tomb is empty, the tomb is empty. Somebody took the body of Jesus. And the men, the men are like, oh, this is nonsense. Silly women, silly women. And so Peter and John run to the tomb. Peter and John run to the tomb and they go in and they investigate. And then after the chaos of the moment dissipates, Mary is left there. And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears to Mary. And Mary sees him, the one she went there to embalm, the one that she knew was dead and expected to stay dead, but there was Jesus alive in front of her. 
It says that Mary went to the disciples with the news. I have, everybody talk to me. What's this word right here? I have seen the Lord. This is not about her faith. This is not about belief. This is not about a hunch. This is not about an aspiration or an aspiration of what they hoped would happen in this moment. But Mary says, I have, I have seen the Lord. And for some of you, that's an unbelievable piece of information to believe. It's too hard for you as a thinking person to believe that someone could die and come back to life. It's hard for you to believe that it's possible, much less probable. But here's what I want you to think about. Think about John who's writing this. And if John's making the whole thing up, if John's just writing something that he wants people to believe that he knows isn't true, why would he make the first eyewitnesses of Jesus marry and the women? Why would he do that? Because if you were in the first century and you were a man and you were going to write a made-up story to get somebody else to believe it, here's who you would not make the first witnesses of the resurrection. You wouldn't make the first witnesses of the resurrection women. Because in those days, women were not even allowed to testify in court. They were considered too emotional and unreliable and not believable and not trustworthy. So if John and the rest of the guys who talk about women going to the tomb first and seeing the resurrected Jesus first... Why would he make women the first witnesses of the resurrection? You know why? Because women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. Say, why would God do it that way? Because he wanted to make sure that everybody would hear about it. (laughs) Just making sure you're listening. So the women, Mary, she goes back and she tells the guys who, again, they're, they're still locked up. I've seen the Lord. And this is where John picks it up. He says, on the evening of that first day, so the first Easter, that evening, on the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders because they were afraid that they were going to be put to death next. As they're there afraid, something happens that they didn't expect to happen. It says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace you i mean imagine what that would have been like they knew jesus was dead and expected him to stay dead but all of a sudden the women are saying they saw jesus and now here's jesus standing in front of them this is after he said this he showed them his hands and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw not when they believed but when they saw the lord They didn't believe something, they they saw something. And in the Jewish culture in the first century, post-mortem experiences of seeing people and seeing spirits and seeing ghosts, that was kind of a common accepted thing. And so if someone said, hey, I saw a ghost, uh, you you didn't think they were crazy. That was just part of the culture. Matter of fact, Jesus' own disciples mistook him for a ghost on more than a few occasions while Jesus was with them doing ministry. This is, this is something different. They had no category for this because this was not a spirit. This was not a ghost. This was a physical body. This was Jesus in a physical body. This was not a dream. This was not immaterial. This is not spiritual. This is a material body in front of them. And Jesus says, look at me. Look at my hands. Look at my side. And you know what Jesus does? Because some of you need to know this. This is how faith works. He gave them evidence. And the evidence in that moment was himself. Some of you, you misunderstand faith. Maybe you grew up in church like I did and you began to have some questions along the way. And then you went to your parents or your grandparents or your Sunday school teacher or your youth leader. You went to somebody and you asked them, you ask an adult, you know, why do we believe this? We just do. 
Well, what about that? We don't believe that. Why? Because we're Christian. Yeah, but what about these people who say this and what about that? And we, we don't think that way. We don't believe that way. And maybe somewhere along the way, you just thought that faith was this silly, silly, stupid, unthinking, non-cerebral thing that people do, contrary to evidence. Listen, faith is not a cop-out. Faith is not a cop-out. It's not refusing to look at evidence. It's not refusing to think about information. Faith is about what's reasonable. Faith is about reasons to believe. That's what faith is, and that's what we're learning about faith in this moment. And Jesus gives them evidence. They saw, they heard, they touched, and then they believed. So if you are here and you outgrew the kid version of your faith, you know, when you're a kid, it's easy to believe. Jesus died and came back to life. It's like, okay, y'all sign me up. I believe that. That's awesome. That's the greatest story I've ever heard. Then you get to middle school. And you don't really think about anything in middle school. You know, I think like that. You know, maybe if you're the exception, you're thinking about things like that, but you're just, you're just kind of growing up and that's to be expected. And then you get to high school and some of those conversations begin maybe to take place. And, and then you become an adult. Maybe you went to college, maybe you didn't, but somewhere along the way, you needed some better answers to your questions, even the questions that you refused to ask out loud. And you decided somewhere along the way, maybe you saw a YouTube video, maybe you read a book, maybe you talked to a friend and they told you they didn't believe and then you were like, ah, me either. And and it was so liberating to just admit it that you didn't believe what you've been pretending to believe for all of those years. And so maybe you're here and you decided once upon a time, whether you've said so out loud or not, that you just don't believe it, you can't believe it. Maybe it's because you misunderstand faith. You need to know that faith is connected to the laws of logic. Faith is connected to reasons and reasoning. It is responding to evidence, sound evidence, and taking a step in that direction. And so this is what you need to know about Easter. The first Christians, the first Christians were Christians not because of what they believed about Jesus, but because they saw a resurrected Jesus. It wasn't their belief about Jesus. It wasn't faith about Jesus or faith or belief in Jesus. This was about what they saw. This was about what they heard. This was about what they touched. This was about proof. This was about evidence. This was about what was reasonable. And then we're introduced to somebody who wasn't there when Jesus showed up. A guy by the name of Thomas. Thomas, also known as Didymus, he was a twin. We don't know much about the twin. He was one of the 12. And John says he wasn't there with the disciples on Sunday evening when Jesus showed up. Now, if you've ever heard anything about Thomas, Thomas has a little epitaph. He's known as a certain type of guy. He's known as Doubting Thomas, right? And for, uh, I don't know why the reasons are, but it's unfortunate and it's really quite tragic. For years and years, preachers have gotten up and on Easter and other Sundays and Christians, we've labeled Thomas, doubting Thomas, as though, as though there was something defective about his faith. As though there was something deficient in his thinking. That there was something wrong with Thomas. That there was something wrong with him doubting. And people have given him this caricature that he has bad faith, that he doesn't have the faith that the other disciples have, that he's slow to believe, he's resistant, he's stubborn. But let me tell you, Thomas is going to teach us about real faith. Thomas is going to teach us about what Christian faith really is. Because when we're introduced to Thomas, don't be hard on him. Because keep in mind, there's some things that he doesn't know right now. There's some things that he has not seen right now. There's some things he has not heard right now. There are some things that he's not touched. The other disciples have. 
And now they believe. They believe because of the evidence they've received. He has not received the same evidence. And it says, so the other disciples came to Thomas and said, we have, there it is again, we've seen the Lord. Thomas, we were all together, hanging out. The doors were open, unlocked. And there it is, Jesus showed up. You know, I'm sure they just tried to make it as good as possible. Jesus showed up, you're not gonna believe it. And you know what? He didn't believe it. He didn't believe them because he didn't have the same evidence that they had. He couldn't make the same reasoning. He couldn't make the same logical conclusions as what they had. But he said to them, unless I see, because you got to see, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. So this, this is not so much about I cannot believe. This is about I will not believe. Thomas wanted more information. He wanted more confirmation. And here's the thing. Is he doubting? Yes, he's doubting. But he's open. He's doubting, but he's available. He's doubting, but he's willing to learn more. He's doubting, and he's willing to lean in. He's doubting, and he's willing to listen. Now, some of you, the worst thing that you can do with your doubts and the worst thing that you can do with your questions is to be closed, to shut the door, to lean away, to walk away. Yeah, but I read a book one time and I changed my mind. Well, hey, congratulations, read another book. Yeah, I watched a YouTube lecture and oh my gosh, there were so many things that I didn't know and I just couldn't believe after that. Well, find another video and watch it. Yeah, but I've got a set of friends and they're so smart and they've read a bunch and they just don't believe and they think it's silly and I kind of think it's silly too now that I've talked to them. Find some other people to talk to and have more conversation. Continue to lean in. Continue to be open. Leave the door open. Continue to pursue evidence. Continue to think about this, to evaluate it. Look at yourself and determine, is it that you can't believe or that you won't believe? And pay attention to that. He's available. He's there. He's not walking away. And I would say to you, if you have questions, if you think you can't believe, if you've been silently unbelieving for a while, don't walk away. Don't do it. Stay open. This is a week later. His disciples were in the house again, and I love this. Thomas was with them. Again, I have to point this out. Thomas didn't believe like them, but he felt as though he belonged with them. This is where the church, for all the Christians in the house, this is where the church has gone wrong in the last 50 to 60 years in this country. We thought that you had to get in line to be a part. We thought that you had to walk the walk and talk the talk to be one of us. You don't have to believe like us in order to belong here with us. So if you're here and you have questions and you have doubts and there's some things that you don't believe that we believe and you disagree with some things, hey, that's fine. We built this place for you. That's what the church is supposed to be about. This is a safe place to ask questions. This is a safe place to have curiosity. You ought to doubt your doubt. You ought to sometimes doubt your faith because sometimes doubt will make your faith stronger and it will always take you further to the truth. Christians should never be intimidated by questions because we serve a savior who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If getting people closer to the truth, why is that a bad thing? Because the truth is always Jesus. So the church should be a safe place to wrestle with doubt and to have questions. And there's Thomas. And to his credit, he didn't walk away from them because he didn't believe like them. And to their credit, the disciples, they didn't ask him to walk away. It says, though the doors were locked. What is wrong with these guys? 
they have a come. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them. And again, peace be with you. It's just a normal Jewish greeting. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. And I don't know about you, but in that moment, I was thinking about it early this morning. I would have been like, Peter, you got a, got a glove? <laughs> or, you know, it's like, is this going to hurt Jesus? And would Jesus have been offended afterward if I'd asked for hand sanitizer? It's like, I, 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 I mean, this is just, Jesus shows up. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus accommodates him. Jesus is offering him now the same evidence that he gave the other disciples, the same evidence that Thomas wanted. He says, look at my hands and look at my side where they stuck the spear in my side. And this is Jesus' way. This is. This is Jesus' way of Thomas. I want you to think. I want you to think right now. I want you to pay attention to your senses. I want you to pay attention to what you can see, and I want you to pay attention to what you can hear, and I want you to pay attention to what you can touch. I want you to pay attention, Thomas, to the proof and to the evidence that's right in front of you. Because the same thing that happened to your disciples, my disciples, your friends that they told you about is now happening to you. So I need you to think this through. And I think that Thomas probably started thinking about some things that Jesus said. Maybe that, you know, that day at the temple when Jesus said, you tear down this temple, I'm going to rebuild it again in three days. Maybe Thomas thought about it in that moment. Maybe Thomas thought about some of the miracles that he saw Jesus perform. Maybe he thought about Jesus hanging there dead on the cross. And then, you know, this is the way I imagine it, that Thomas in that moment, he looks up and he stops looking at the scars and he stops looking at the hole in Jesus' side and he looks at Jesus in the eyes and he comes to one reasonable, logical conclusion. And he says this, my Lord and my God. Is this a confession of theology? Yes, it is. Would we call this a religious confession? Yes, we would. But more than that, it is a logical, reasonable confession of intellect for Thomas in this moment. To say anything else would have been to defy the evidence. To say anything else would have been to thumb his nose up at the proof in front of him. But because of what he could see and because of what he could hear and because of what he could touch, he believed again. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. This is not a rebuke. This is a fact. You saw me, you believed. They saw me, they believed. And then this is where you come into the story. This is where I come into the story. This is where all other generations of people come into the story. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen yet believed. Thomas, there are people going to come behind you that will believe what you believe. But Thomas, you're part of a special generation. You're part of generation 1.0. You're part of the generation that got to see, that got to touch, that got to hear. You got proof beyond any possible doubt. You received the highest possible proof. You have seen me, you have heard me, you have touched me. But there are people who are gonna come after you who are gonna believe even though they do not get the opportunity to see with their eyes what you have seen with your eyes or hear with their ears what you have heard with your ears or touch with their hands what you have touched with your hands. But others, Thomas, they're gonna believe in me because of what you have seen and because of what you have heard and because of what you've touched. 
because you and your friends are going to tell other people about it. And some of you are going to write about it and you're going to write it down. And your eyewitness testimony is going to be proof. It's going to be evidence. It's going to be something that people have to wrestle with. And there will be many who believe. Not because of an absence of evidence. It's just going to be different because it can only be this way for you. And so Thomas believed again because of what he saw. And Thomas would be a bridge to other generations. And Thomas and his friends, he teaches us what true faith is. Parents, this is what you should teach your children. This is what we should remind one another about all the time because if you're here and you have faith, this is a way to make your faith stronger. If you're here and you're not sure if you have faith or not, this is a way to get closer, perhaps, to faith. This is what you need to know about faith. Faith begins with facts. Let's all just say that out loud together. Faith begins with facts. Does it begin with a feeling? Does it begin with a sermon? Does it begin with a song? Faith, true faith, legitimate, authentic, mature faith begins with facts. Faith is not wishful thinking. It is not pie in the sky. It is not belief contrary to the evidence or in spite of the evidence. It is belief because of evidence. It's a logical response to the evidence. Faith is believing in something that you believe you have good reason to believe in. Faith is believing in something that you believe you have good reason to believe in. And Christian faith, Christian faith, faith that thinks, faith that investigates, Faith that asks questions, faith that wrestles in the doubt is both reasonable and defensible. It's reasonable and defensible. Christian faith is not based on faulty information. It is based on solid information, eyewitness information. It's a response to that. So here's what I want you to understand. Christian theology is anchored to history, not Christian history. Not a Christian version of history, but world history. World history that's embraced by the skeptic, by the agnostic, by the atheist, and by the believer. There is certain things in history that are fact. And you just need to know that. You knew that, but you don't think about that. But this is profound. There are things in history that are a historical fact that are embraced by Christian and non-Christian alike. Here are some of those facts. Bart Ehrman, I've read a couple of his books. He, he's an atheist. Uh, he believed once upon a time and then he decided he, he didn't believe anymore. He, he's one of the biggest scholars in the world as it relates to antiquity, texts of religion, Christianity, Jewish texts. Uh, he, he's a higher critic of, of those ancient texts. And this is what he says as a historian, as a guy who's read more than you'll ever read, knows more than I'll ever know. Here, here's what he says as a non-believer. Despite the enormous range of opinion, there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Doesn't matter, Christian, non-Christian. And what he's saying, this is fact. Jesus was a Jewish man, known to be a preacher and teacher. So if you're here and you're like, you know, I'm not even sure if I believe Jesus existed. Well, I'm sorry to break it to you, but that's dumb. That's dumb. You wanna talk about not thinking, if you wanna talk about not paying attention, there's nobody serious, there's nobody credible. There's no serious scholar out there in the world today that you know, disputes whether Jesus existed, and that's what he's saying. He was a preacher and teacher who was crucified in Jerusalem during the reign of the Roman Emperor Tiberius when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. He says, this is what we can know as a historical fact. He's not even a Christian. Jesus was real, he was crucified. He says, it is undisputable 
It's a fact that some of the followers of Jesus came to think that he had been raised from the dead and that something had to have happened to make them think so. He says that, it's a fact. He goes on to say it is an historical fact that some of Jesus' followers came to believe that he'd been raised from the dead soon after his execution. E.P. Sanders, one of the greatest scholars in the world when it comes to Christian and Jewish texts, he said this, that Jesus' followers, and later Paul had resurrection experience, is in my judgment a fact. And then he says, what the reality was that gave rise to those experiences, I do not know. Finally, he says, we know, we know this, that after his death, followers experienced what they described as the resurrection, the appearance of a living but transformed person who had actually died. They believed this. They lived it. They died for it. Paula Fredrickson, historian, she said this. She said, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historic evidence that we have afterwards attests to the conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying, she says, that's what they really did see. I'm not saying they saw the raised Jesus. I don't know what they saw. But I do know as a historian that they must have seen something. Last one, Reginald Fuller said this. The disciples thought that they had witnessed Jesus' appearance, which however they are explained is a fact upon which both believer and unbeliever may agree. Christian theology is anchored to, married to, inseparable from history. Faith begins with facts, and here are the facts. Here are the facts that non-believers attest to. These are the facts that agnostics, skeptics, atheists say. These are facts, here they are. Jesus was a real person, died on a cross and was buried. Upon his death, the disciples felt hopeless and despondent. Jesus' tomb was empty, fact. And no one ever produced his body because if they produced the body, it's over, rover. Jesus' followers believed that they saw him resurrected from the dead. Jesus' followers were transformed because of what they experienced, because they were behind locked doors, and then they went out into all the world, and Jesus' followers were willing to die for their belief. Those are the facts, as scholarship knows it. So I say to you and to myself again, faith begins facts. But it ends in trust. It's one thing to believe that Jesus came, that Jesus died, that Jesus was raised from the dead. It is another thing to place your trust in him as your savior and Lord. Faith and trust is when the theological and the historical come together. It's when faith and reason come together. It's when the unseen but not unfounded comes together. Faith is the belief that we have based on evidence, based on the facts. It's the logical conclusions that we can come to based on the facts as we know them to be. So after Thomas said, my Savior and my God, and after Jesus said, there's another generation coming that will believe even though they haven't seen, John says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He said, signs. Articles of evidence, proofs, reasons to believe. I've recorded these as facts because faith begins with facts. But these are written also that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here's a question for all of us who may be here and have doubts, who may be here and have questions. Why should you believe and trust Christ as your Savior and Lord? Why should you believe that on the first Easter the tomb was empty? Because God raised his son from the dead. Because you're like a jury. That's what Jesus was saying. Every other generation coming after you, Thomas, is the jury. You guys, you ladies, are the eyewitnesses. And the jury will do what juries always do. They will evaluate the evidence and come to the reasonable, logical conclusion. And whenever an eyewitness testifies in front of the jury, the jury has one big question. Can we trust the eyewitnesses? Now, I want to say to you, I think we can. Because why would they make it up? If you think they made it up, you better come up with an explanation of why you think they made it up. FBI profilers say that people make things up for sex, power, and money. Do you know what they didn't get? Sex, power, or money. You know what they did get? They got stoned. They got hung up on crosses. They got drowned. Their families were persecuted. They were generation 1.0. They were the ones who would really have known whether or not it was true. And if they knew it was a lie, what possible, reasonable, logical explanation would there be for them to lay down their life for what they knew was a lie? Why would they expose their family, their wives, their children, their husbands to persecution for something that only they could know whether or not it was true? And if you're going to say it wasn't true, you better come up with a reasonable, logical explanation of why they did what they did. You'll have to wrestle with the fact that James, the half-brother of Jesus, didn't believe in his brother as Messiah or Savior until after he saw him resurrected from the dead. And James became a pastor and a leader in the church. And James gave his life as a follower of Jesus who happened to be his brother. You don't have to ask questions about the Apostle Paul who decided he hated Christians. He was going to kill them until he met Jesus, resurrected from the dead. And then he became one of the greatest Christian leaders in the history of the church. You're going to have to wrestle with how accurate the New Testament is. There's 84 historical facts that have been verified in the book of Acts alone. Weather patterns, water depth land features, politicians. You'll have to wrestle with the fact that there's over 40 different sources that wrote about Jesus, non-Christian sources that wrote about Jesus within 150 years of his life. So is that a big deal? I think it is because in the same span of time, there were only 10 people who wrote about Tiberius, who was the emperor of the eternal empire of Rome. Why would they write about a carpenter from Nazareth? And give him so much attention and so much time. It's because we know the tomb was empty. That we know. The question is, why was the tomb empty? And I want to say to us, for those who wrote it down early, too early for a legend to develop, 
too early for things to be added to it along the way. That from the very beginning, the message was Jesus died and was buried and was raised from the dead. For the first followers of Jesus, the first Easter was about what they said they saw. For the rest of us, it's a matter of what we believe they saw. So if God really did raise Jesus from the dead, you know what that means? It means we have to take everything that Jesus said seriously. If God raised Jesus from the dead, it validates every claim that Jesus made about himself. If God raised Jesus from the dead, it's true that when we see Jesus, we know what God is like. If God raised Jesus from the dead, if that's true, there are some other things that are true. It means that God exists. It means you're not some cosmic accident. You're not the outflow of random laws of physics or chemistry. You are here on a purpose for a purpose that God has a plan for your life. If God raised Jesus from the dead, that means that we're all sinners and we've fallen short of the glory of God. If God raised Jesus from the dead, it means that God demonstrated his love for us that while we were sinners, he died for us. If God raised him from the dead, it really does mean that God is our father. He calls us sons and daughters, invites us into his family, not by behavior, but by belief that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If the tomb is empty, if God raised him from the dead, it's true. We can be forgiven. We can have a better life in this life and eternal life in the next life. And I believe, and people all around the world believe that God raised him from the dead. And if you're a Christian, if God raised him from the dead, that means you don't have to be afraid to die. It means absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. It means that though you may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear. It means that one day, Jesus himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God is going to sound. And an angel will set one foot upon the sea and one foot upon the land and declare that time will be no more. And those who have died believing in Jesus, the graves will burst open and they will experience a resurrection just like Jesus. And they will receive glorified bodies to die never again. If God raised Jesus from the dead, everything is changing. Everything has changed. So when Jesus said it is finished, that day on the cross, what he was really saying, it's just getting started. Heavenly Father, speak. Speak in this moment. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. For those of us who are wrestling with doubt and unbelief, maybe today faith began with facts. As we wrestle with, why was the tomb empty? Why did they say that they saw Jesus? And why were they willing to lay down their lives for it? Lord, I believe there's only one reasonable, logical conclusion. You raised Jesus from the dead. And if you're here today and God is speaking to your heart and you're as surprised as anyone, I want to give you an opportunity to take a step of trust, to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Maybe you've not voiced your unbelief to anybody ever. And you've just been going through the motions. But in this moment, you realize, like Thomas, there's reasons to believe. 
sound reasons to believe. I want to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer of faith and trust. You don't have to pray it out loud, but right there where you are, just say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to this world to die for my sins. Thank you that you raised him from the dead. And Father, this moment, I want to confess, I believe it. And Jesus said that whosoever believes will never perish but have eternal life. And God, right now in this moment, I receive your gift of eternal life, not based on what I have done, but based on what Jesus has done for me. Thank you. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the promise of a better life and eternal life. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Nobody's going to come to you. Nobody's going to embarrass you. But I want to give you an opportunity to mark this moment at all of our campuses. I want to give you an opportunity to mark this moment by just slipping up a hand. If you prayed and said, Trevor, I meant that with all of my heart. I just want you to slip up your hand and put it right back down as a moment to say, this is when I prayed and took a step of faith. There's a hand, there's a hand, there's a hand, there's a hand, there's another hand, another hand, hands all over the place. Just slip it up. Mark this moment as a moment that because of the facts, I took a step of trust. You just slip up a hand. Anybody else? Just mark this moment. Father, for those that have raised their hands and for those that wanted to, may today be the first step of many. And may they have a conversation either with a pastor today or with a friend to learn about what the next step is. And for those who wanted to raise their hand, but yet they prayed and they took a step of putting their trust in you today, I pray that they would have a conversation with someone and let someone know. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the life that we have. And thank you for the living hope. And thank you for the hope that we have beyond death and beyond this life. In Jesus' name. And everybody said,